someone once said that details are the difference between good stuff and great stuff. It was Chuck Swindoll who actually said this. He was a pastor down the street uh, years ago. Uh, the difference between something good and something great is attention to detail. Last week, we talked about the fundamentals of our, our faith, and the, the, this fundamental truth that is so pivotal uh, to our walking through life is this reality that we have been chosen by God. Christians, they persevere through suffering, first and foremost, by remembering that they have been chosen by God. Um, but you know, as I think about it, it's one thing to, uh, to know that you've been chosen. That's one thing. It's another thing to know what you have been chosen for. Am I right? After all, you may not want to be chosen when you find out what you have been chosen for. I can think of plenty of times when I heard my name called, and I did not want to hear my name called, like when I was called on in class. Jared, would you please read for the class? No! No! Please choose someone else. Jared, would you please go up to the whiteboard and solve the problem? No, thank you. Jared, would you please translate this verse from Greek to English for the entire class? class and make sure you parse out each word. No, thank you. I don't need to be chosen for that. Please bless someone else. Choose them. At home, all I needed to hear was my name. Called my name from outside. I'd hear my dad's voice and I would know that ah, I'm going to be out there for an hour. An hour and a half, two hours. What am I going to be doing? Am I going to be pulling weeds? Am I cleaning the pool? Am I raking up leaves? Am I fixing something? I don't want to be called on. I don't want to be chosen. The difference is in the details, isn't it? It's in the details. And so we have to ask, is being chosen by God even something that we want? <laughs> is this a good thing? The difference is in the details. It's in the details. And Peter wants to clue us in to what those details are when it comes to being chosen by God. What it means to be a Christian. And we see here in Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, that the details are so significant. In fact, they are so significant that Peter cannot help but respond by just exploding out in praise for what God has done. And I think he wants to bring us along with him. Would you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1? And we'll just start all the way back in verse, uh, verse 1, uh, a whole two verses back, uh, because uh, we, this is just, it's just good. It's just so good. Would you stand with me as we read from God's word together? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It's like going back to the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And here's our passage for today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What a sentence. What an incredible sentence, and how powerful for us. You have been chosen by God, and now you may be seated. (laughs) You have been chosen by God. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you've been chosen by God. Your faith is not an accident. It's not an accident. God actually chose you, Paul says in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. But chosen for what? Jury duty? No, thank you. Chosen to get up in the class? No, not that kind of being chosen. The difference is all in the details. Let's get into it. First of all, it's important that we realize that there is a motive behind the choosing, behind God's choosing. It's not that he wanted to pick on you. No, mercy is the motive. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he writes, according to his great mercy. Titus chapter 3 tells us the exact same thing. Not because of works of righteousness, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Think about that word mercy for a moment there. Mercy is different than grace, isn't it? It's a little different than grace. When you give grace to someone, you're giving them something that uh, they didn't do anything to deserve. It's a gift, essentially. Grace is a gift. Mercy, on the other hand, is different. It's something that you offer to someone who actually should get something. They do deserve something. And more often than not, when someone begs for mercy, (laughs) they're pleading that they might be spared from receiving the very thing that they know should be coming to them. They made a mistake. They did something that they know should not be done. I begged for mercy. I begged for mercy over at Azusa Pacific University when I held in my hands my term paper that was over a month late. I begged for mercy. We beg for mercy when we make that illegal U-turn and we look up at the officer. You throw yourself at the mercy of the court when you know they have you dead to rights. There's no more witnesses that we can call forward. There's no more evidence that can be presented. There's no further arguments that can be made. People who beg for mercy, they're often desperate, aren't they? They're they're in a bad way. They're the pathetic. They're the, the guilty. They're the condemned. They're the lost and the dead, like, like how Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We went through Timothy a little while back. He wrote, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. It's like who he told the Ephesians that, that they were in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not a good description. 
You don't want to be included in on that, and yet he included everybody. But then he says, but God, being rich in mercy. What he's describing here is are people who are in the pit. People who are walking around, thinking, acting, living like nothing is wrong, but in all reality, they are dead when it comes to their relationship with the one who made them. These people, humanity, Genesis 2 tells us, they were intentionally designed, intentionally made by God, fashioned in his very image. They were made so that they might experience this incredible, perfect relationship with him, a relationship with with the perfect, most powerful, most important, most intelligent, most wonderful person in all of existence. That's what you and I were made for. Whatever good you think that you experience in this life, right here, right now, is nothing compared to what you were intended to know and experience in him. And since then, humanity has made a decision to go its own way. And because of that, God's word tells us we've been cut off, destined for an eternity of misery apart from God. And yet Ephesians tells us, but God... Being rich in mercy, Paul goes on to say, because of the great love with which he loved us, that's why God chooses to rescue people and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. The motive is mercy. It's his mercy on those who deserve a a quick and, and ferocious justice. It's his mercy that brings, as one pastor put it, from from the pit to the palace. It's his mercy. That's a detail we cannot overlook, is it? That's a detail that makes a tremendous difference. It tells us that regardless of what it is that we have been chosen for, just thinking about what we have been chosen out of or chosen from is worth falling on our faces and tears just cascading towards the ground. And us choking out the words, thank you, thank you, thank you. And like a person who pledges their undying loyalty to someone who saved their life, knowing that you have received mercy is it's enough for us to just take all that we have and, and hold it out and just, just lay, lay it out there and say, take it, Lord. All, all, all of it. Take, take all of it. Take, 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 take everything. <laughs> I'm yours from this day forward. Mercy is the motive. Secondly, rebirth is the requirement According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When a will is read, the only one that that really matters to are the people who are still living and who were able to hear that will being read. Hear their names being called, right? They're the ones who can receive what they have coming to them. 
And when it comes to this inheritance that Peter is talking about here, the spiritual, eternal inheritance that he's talking about, you've got to be spiritually alive to actually receive it. The Bible talks about it. Jesus, in fact, talks about it as being born again. A religious teacher came up to Jesus. Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, what are you talking about? John 3, verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. How can a man be born the sec- for a second time? It just doesn't work. Yeah, you're right. It's impossible. But the rebirth that Jesus is referring to here is one that takes place on a spiritual level. And the one who makes it happen is God's Spirit. Just like the death that Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2 is is about a spiritual death rather than a physical death, it's the same with this rebirth that Jesus and Peter are talking about here. It's a spiritual rebirth. Having been separated from God without hope and without God in this world, humanity is, is cut off. And that means we're unable to receive any of the good things that God has stored up for us. Jesus said, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Spiritually dead people, they don't retire to a spiritual paradise in the presence of their maker. No, they need to be spiritually alive for that. And that means they're going to have to be reborn. And it is a spiritual rebirth that enables you to receive the inheritance that is coming to to you. You've been reborn, born into a living hope, Peter writes. Rebirth is the prerequisite. It's the requirement. It is is what you must have to enjoy that living hope. Have you been spiritually reborn into this living hope, living hope. We're all familiar with dead hope, aren't we? Dead hope is all that we really know in this life. Since we walked away from our maker and went our own way, it's, it's all we know. Job eighteen thirteen says, Such are the paths of all who forget God, the hope of the godless shall perish. The hope of those whose sin has cut them off from the one that has created them, from their relationship with God, that hope, whatever it may be, it dies eventually, always, every time, without fail. Proverbs 10, 28 says the same thing. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. And if we go back to Ephesians 2, we realize we're in that wicked category. I already mentioned Ephesians 2.12. Paul writes, remember that, it, it, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Are you still separated from Christ? 
Any hope that we have apart from Christ is dead hope. It doesn't last. Either it wears out, it rusts out, it fizzles out, it gives out, or it's taken out. Either it dies first, or we do. And because there's no hope apart from Jesus that makes one bit of difference post-mortem, then any hope other than this kind of hope that Jesus offers is just, it's just worthless. And that applies to stuff we work so hard to get. What are you working for right now? It applies to, to dreams that we try so hard to attain. The relationships that we thought were going to make all the difference. And even when we do something great or build something great, something that is even going to last, it's going to stand the test of time, or at least the test of a period of time, we eventually have to come to grips with the reality that we're not going to last. We're not. This is all going away. I will not be here at some point. I had a conversation with my 10-year-old daughter the other day, and she started crying as we, we talked about that. But it's the reality. What happens then? Well, we get an elaborate headstone, <laughs> or we get our name on the side of a building. Whoa! We, 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 our name goes down in the history books. How about that? People are going to be reading about us. Or it's up on, on that wonderful, incredible uh, rite of passage thing out there, somewhere nebulous in the, the interwebs called Wikipedia. Our name is on Wikipedia. It's amazing. Or what about this? What if someone decides they're going to make a mini-series about us? Oh my gosh. And they're gonna, we're going to be played by someone who is far better looking than we ever were and says much wittier things than we ever said, and they completely misrepresent who we actually were. What kind of hope is that? What kind of hope is that? I'll tell you what kind of hope that is. It's dead hope. Dead hope. It's a hope that doesn't last. It's a hope that makes no lasting difference or at least has no ability to fix our unavoidable problem. But Peter says, he's caused us to be reborn into a living hope. It's hope which moth and rust have no jurisdiction it's hope that political leaders and policies cannot touch. Hope that, that dungeons and dragons cannot intimidate. It, it's hope that death and the grave have no power over. Why? Because this is hope. The one and only, genuine, grade A, pure, living hope. I've got I've to admit that... Um, the most troubling thing through the past two years of death and disease that our world has experienced, the most troubling thing to me has not been the threat of getting sick. And it hasn't been <laughs> the shortages on toilet paper or the high price of meat or gas or the oppressive health orders or the frustrating politicians. It hasn't been the face masks or the mandates, though I'll tell you I do have serious issues with anyone who would forcibly restrict the freedom freedom of another 
violate the sovereignty that they have over the sacred territory of their own body. The most troubling thing to, to me, though, is, is people who claim to have been reborn into this superior living hope and have taken that living hope and they've, they've shoved it over into the corner. And they've covered it with a thick blanket and allowed fear and frustration and anger, panic, self-preservation to mark their lives. And I'm just as guilty as that. What are we doing? My friends, if our trust is in Jesus Christ, we've been born again to a living hope. Do you realize that? Do you get that? How can that not be the defining reality that impacts every single thing, every single problem, every single challenge that comes to us in life? How can it not? The difference is in the details. Martha's face was dripping with tears. It must have been. As she said, Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. Maybe you've experienced that kind of loss. You've experienced pain on that kind of level. It's when Jesus responds to her and says, your brother will rise again. Then some of the most powerful, hope-inducing words that have ever been spoken from human lips came. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Living hope. Do you see it? Do you have it? Someone says, well, that's a nice thought. <laughs> oh, happy thought, but how could anyone take that seriously? How could you be so gullible? How could you be so naive as to believe in something so ridiculous as that trusting in Jesus is the secret to life after death? How can you believe that? Glad you asked. You can and you should. You can and you should because Jesus went first. He went first. He proved that death no longer has the last laugh when three days after he died upon a Roman cross and his body was shut up inside the earth, he completely obliterated life's unbreakable paradigm and powerfully rose from the grave. The skeptic says, seriously, <laughs> you actually believe that fairy tale? You better believe I do. You better believe I do. There's just there's too much evidence. Some of the harshest criti critics, in fact, have, have, they've devoted themselves to weighing the evidence, examining the clues. And once and for all, we're going to put an end to this Jesus myth. Problem is, the more they get into it, the deeper that they dive, the more they realize that the historicity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead is more believable and ho would hold up in a court of law more than just about any other so-called fact that we could put on trial. Don't believe it? Go search for yourself. 
read the books. Examine the actual facts. Just don't, don't just buy into what those talking heads on YouTube and TikTok are saying. <laughs> or those self-inflated, agenda-driven so-called scholars from ivy-colored, covered institutions. There's a rock-solid basis for this living hope. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Peter is pointing us to. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be reborn to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that those who trust in him that the promises that he made are not just a bunch of bunk. <laughs> it's not false hope. No, it's living hope. Sure, if he didn't rise from the dead, then, then there is no hope. It doesn't really matter. If that's the case, then people who trust in Jesus, well, they are no better off than anybody else. In fact, they're worse off. They've been duped, duped into spending their life believing in some ridiculous pipe dream when they could have been spending their life doing all sorts of other things. The Apostle Paul himself agrees with that, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those, then, then, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But here's the thing. Christ has been raised. Christian, do you get that? Christ has been raised. Do you see how that changes everything? The difference is in the details. If your trust is in Jesus, you've been chosen by God. If you've been chosen by God, then you've been reborn into a living hope. That, that hope is life beyond this life. It's life beyond the grave. But what's more, it's unending life that is defined and, and, and lived out in, in posh, extravagant, glorious paradise that Christ has enjoyed from eternity past and we were originally created to experience. We are talking about living hope that makes all the difference. We're talking about an inheritance that has been given. Those who trust in Jesus, they've been called out of darkness. They've been brought into the marvelous light. Those who have been chosen by God, they have an eternal inheritance. Verse 4 says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The gift that we have in Christ, those who have been chosen, what, what do they have? They have an inheritance. And inheritance is it's wealth, or it's a legacy, or it's just about anything and everything that was once enjoyed by one person or, or a group of people, and now it is being passed down to others. 
when the people of Israel were journeying to the promised land, the Bible talks about that land as their dwelling, their, their possession. This is an inheritance, the Bible says. And that's a picture of what the people of God uh, ha- have in Christ and what they're looking forward to. The promised land was this physical inheritance in this life, and it was good. But you know, it would come and go based upon Israel's obedience. And not only that, it was filled with all kinds of people who would mistrust, misguide, and mistreat one another. But it was a picture. A picture of a better, more perfect, promised land that was coming. The inheritance that Peter is talking about is otherworldly. It's eternal, and it's completely free of all that fighting and all that strife and all that heartache and all that pain and all that suffering that exists in the here and now. What would life be like without all of that stuff? Oh, that'd be incredible. Just like money that has been set aside for a child to enjoy uh, when they come of age later on in life, Peter wants us to know there is an inheritance for those who are in Christ. Should knowing that detail make any difference for you and I right now? Let's look a little more closely at this inheritance real quick. Peter tells us it's imperishable. Imperishable. Think of some of that fruit that's now rotting in my kitchen. It never dies. It never goes away. It can't be lost. Why, wouldn't that be nice? How many stories have we heard of people who have squandered their inheritance? Jesus told the story himself, prodigal son. He, he said, Dad, give me everything that I have coming to me. He goes out and he spends it on extravagant living, wild living, and before he knows it, it's gone. Or what about the people who have been cheated out of their inheritance? Maybe, maybe some of them are sitting right in this room. I knew a pastor. I know a pastor. He's still alive. I know a pastor whose brother cheated him to the tune of about half a million dollars. An inheritance in this life is no sure thing, but in the inheritance that Christians have in Jesus, Peter says, that is imperishable. Not only that, it's undefiled. How many good things do we have in life that come pre-defiled? They come pre-defiled. Or how many are intrinsically defiled? They're tainted, they're blemished, they're imperfect. I've played the game long enough to know that every time I buy a new piece of furniture, (laughs) without fail, there's going to be something wrong with it. There's going to be a nick, there's going to be a scratch, something doesn't fit right. It's, It's without question. Everything has been defiled. The question is, is it going to be bad enough for me to go to all the trouble of returning it? I was talking to an exotic car guy a while back who was telling me that despite the hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars that people pay for these things, they're always dishing out more and more and more money, and the cars are always going into the shop. Why? Because they have all kinds of issues. They're all defiled. My dad, every time we, go, we went to the store to buy something, it was, so, it was like clockwork every single time. He goes up to the shelf, and he starts moving all of the items so that he can get to the one box in the back 
Why? Because he figured that the one in the back was the one that has not recently been put back up on the shelf after someone returned the thing. He didn't want the one that was defiled. And that is not the way it is with our inheritance. Our inheritance in Jesus is undefiled. It's perfect. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's also unfading, he says. Everything in life loses its appeal. Everything loses its, its appeal. Once was once the newest, the greatest, the most technologically advanced, it's eventually going to be taking up space in a landfill. Either that or it's going to make its way to a recycle center. Ever look back at a picture of yourself from when you were 18, 20? Throwback Thursday. It's depressing, isn't it? I'm already there. I'm already at this stage. I look back I'm like, oh my gosh, who is that guy? This inheritance that you have in Christ does not fade. It doesn't age. It doesn't wrinkle or discolor or lose that, that soft, silky texture. It's unfading. And Peter's going to tell us in chapter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What do you think of that? How many of us would love to go back and recapture something of our youth? <laughs> if you're young right now, you're going to get there soon enough. It's going to come real, real fast. How much money is spent on creams and pills and procedures that try to help us recapture something of what we've lost? Feel sort of like what we once felt but didn't pay any attention to back then. Those who have been reborn to this living hope need to remember that well they see this life wasting away, there is an unfading inheritance coming. But get this. It's not just coming. It's there. Right now, it's there. Peter says, it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's being kept there right now. Look around you. Look at all, think of all the problems, all the things, all your, your honeydew list, all the things you have to take care of, that in, the insurance person you have to call, the thing you have to deal with with your car, the mortgage that needs to be paid, the doctor visit that's coming up. Think about all those things and realize your inheritance is there, ready, right now. It's being guarded. It's not like the car that you reserved and, and you go to the rental car company and it may or may not be there, right? <laughs> because they've given it away. No, it's being guarded. It's there. It's not going anywhere. It's being watched over. It can't be taken away. You know, there are no thieves or vandals in heaven. <laughs> Revelation 21 assures us of that. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Details make the difference, don't they? If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then your inheritance is being held on your behalf right there, right now. It's ready and waiting to be unveiled. 
on a day that's already been set. Are you ready for it? Can you stand the weight? Are you dreaming of the day when, as Jesus said, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The difference is in the details. And the salvation that we have displays God's glory. Amen? Is your trust in Jesus? If it is, you've been reborn to a living hope and have an inheritance beyond imagination waiting for you right now. As John's eyes were opened to what was on the way, he wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is good. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's coming. Are you ready? You know, I think the question, the big question for us is, in the midst of all the troubles and all the pains and all the sufferings that we have in life right now, are we living with the end in sight? Are we looking to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith? <laughs> are, are we like Abraham, who was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God? Are we like Peter, completely blown away by the mercy that our Maker has shown, on, <laughs> shown us and and and? moved beyond any darkness, or we move beyond any darkness and discouragement and frustration and fear to just explode with praise for the one who's taken care of all the details and secured for us a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we... we We are in awe of you. I pray, Lord, that we are in awe of you. Of your majesty, of your glory, and this reality that, Lord, you have called people like us to share in that with you. Lord, I thank you and praise you for those in this room who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ, Lord. But if there are those who have not yet crossed that line, 
Lord, I pray, God, that you draw them to yourself. They'd step, step across and just say, Lord, I need you. I'm a sinful person who has been cut off from everything good. I've been going down a path, and it hasn't been too bad, Lord, but all I have is dead hope. I need Jesus. Here I am. Take all of me, Lord. Thank you for what you did on the cross. Thank you for taking my place, dying the death that I should have died. Thank you, Lord, for conquering death as your resurrection points to my resurrection and the hope that I will have because my trust is in Jesus. Man, if that's you, would you, would you cross that line and place your trust in Jesus and have your life forever changed? And Father, for the rest of us who we continue to be barraged by all sorts of cares of this world and all sorts of troubles and all sorts of pains, Lord, that are very, very real, very, very hurtful, very, very distracting, very disheartening, Lord. May you continually draw our attention to the living hope that we have because <laughs> we have been reborn. Father, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.